Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 30. Chapters 30 through 39 uh, brings us to the fourth major section of the book of Jeremiah. It contains prophecies that are yet future. Matter of fact, the first eight verses of chapter 30 deal with the time of Jacob's trouble. They're not necessarily going to be in a chronological order. And the section from 30 to 39 is actually going to bring to pass, once we get to chapter 34, actually the very fall of Jerusalem itself. Uh, My goal tonight, because it's a unique section, is chapters 30 through 33. It's unique in that it talks a lot about the future glory of the kingdom. It talks about what they're going to have to go through with the great tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble. And 30, 31, 32, and 33, I really want to get through, even though a couple of these chapters are long and my voice is weak. (laughs) So bear with me with that. I have good days and bad days with my voice. But with chapter 34, it's a switch where it actually deals with the fall of what Jeremiah has been predicting all along. What's becoming obvious to the people, there was a false prophet named Hananiah, who seven years previous to this chapter here told everybody everything was going to be okay. Uh, Jeconiah would come back from Babylon, so would the temple treasuries, so on and so forth. Well, they're past that. Jeremiah is in prison. Nebuchadnezzar is surrounding the city, and it will fall in chapter 34. But we have sort of the silver lining in 30, 31, 32, and 33. And even though they are kind of long chapters, I really would like to do see if we can do them as one. And I still want to do some sidetracks because there are three prophecies in here in particular that we're going to look at more fully on Sunday, but they're Bible studies within themselves. So let's dive right in as we get into... Um, the future restoration of the land in verse 1 of chapter 30. Now the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will cause them to return to the land, I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words of the Lord, spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins, like a woman in labor? And all faces turn pale. Alas, for that great That day is great, so that there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now here he is ministering to them um, about the return, their future return, after their seven years of captivity. But he jettisons way past that into this time that says there's going to be a time like no other time in the world. And it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It could be called the tribulation. Jesus called it that in Matthew 24. 
He says there's a day coming um, such as not been nor will ever be. And he says unless he directly intervenes in world history that no flesh would be saved. That's what is being referred to here. So the first eight verses of chapter 30 is speaking about a future event that uh, has not been fulfilled. There's been many terrible, you know, happenings, the Holocaust. Uh, on Sunday, I went through all the events, part of the news bites tonight, are events that happened on the 9th of Av. Um, but here the Lord is talking about not only the captivity of coming back from Babylon, and again, one of the things that we want to be sensitive to, I mean, we're going to see it tonight, with one verse that I would have never have seen as a fulfillment of something that happened in the New Testament, unless the New Testament passage says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. I would have never seen it. And um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. But these first eight verses um, are a thought that is yet future. It's called Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. It has many different names. But it's basically Revelation chapter 6 through 16, where we have uh, the seven seals, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. Uh, It's also called the, the wrath of the Lamb. It's God's judgment upon this planet for those who have rejected uh, the gospel, and um, they will their their day has come when the Lord uh, will judge. Verse eight and nine. But it'll come to pass in that day, says the Lord of Hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God. And notice, and David their king whom I will raise up from them. Now, Jeremiah is, is one of the books that refers several times that it appears that um, David is going to be the one who actually sits on the throne as a representative of the Lord himself. And um, it's just an incredible thought for me to know that David's coming back uh, we'll have a different place. Of course, the church has a different place than how God deals with Israel. And we'll get into that tonight with the two covenants that we're going to touch on here. Um, 9 through up to verse 24 is a future hope of restoration. Um, Therefore, do not fear. So these are words of comfort, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord. Nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet. No one will make him afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice, and will not let you be altogether unpunished. Now, now as this relates to the time of Jacob's tribulation, uh, we learn that um, two-thirds of the Jewish people will be destroyed 
by the Antichrist. And uh, we're told that a remnant is going to be taken to, Isaiah 16 tells us um, that it's Selah, Petra, and also known as Basra. And that ties into Isaiah chapter 61, I think it is, where it says, who is this who is returning from Basra, Basra with his garments drenched in blood? who treads out the winepress. It's a prophecy of the Lord returning, saving the remnant who are at Petra, and um, uh, that is yet, yet future. And so what we have here, again, we want to keep in view, we have two things that Jeremiah is talking about. A local captivity in Babylon being brought back, and yet a future restoration, and... Um, we'll see them actually going back and forth. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, there is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up, Uh, you have no healing medicines, all your lovers have forgotten you, they do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy and with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitudes of your iniquities, because... Your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. All your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those uh, who plunder you shall become plunder. And all who pray upon you, I will make a prey, for I will restore health to you and heal you of all your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. So in these verses right here, you have the indictment, and we're actually going to read in the next chapters, um, the, the Lord identifies specifically the sins that they got into And uh, specifically, the sins of the fathers is one of the reasons that judgment is going to come upon them. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places. The cities shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving in the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall uh, not be small. Their children also shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach me. And who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked, and the fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart. Now notice this last verse. 
In the latter days, you will consider it. Let me just throw in Daniel at this point. Daniel was given a lot of this information, uh, including the last reigning world empire that's a part of the book of Revelation with the Antichrist. He's called the little horn in Daniel. Daniel wanted to know. All this information was being given to him, and then in Daniel chapter 12, um, he inquired, he says, Lord, fill me in. And he says, no, Daniel, these things are shut up and they are sealed until the time of the end. So what the Lord is telling Daniel, he says, Daniel, you're not going to get it right now. I'm going to shut it up and I'm going to seal it up, but then there's the word until. It says, um, many will travel to and fro. Knowledge is going to increase. None of the wicked will understand it, but those who are wise will understand because it's going to be unsealed. The book of Revelation literally means the unveiling of. And so we read here, in the latter days you will consider it. There will be a group of people who are simply studying their Bibles like you guys are tonight. And um, we're watching current events and we're seeing the signs of the times. That's the name of our prophecy conference, or the times of the signs, actually. Where Jesus said the generation that sees Israel become a nation again will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. Wow. That's quite a statement. And um, what Bible teachers have wanted to know, the prophets wanted to know, Daniel wanted to know, you guys get to know. I get to know. And all we have to do is read the word because in the latter days you'll consider it, but more than that, in the latter days you're going to understand it. And um, um, it's simply a matter of being diligent in um, talking about, I'm going to talk a lot tonight and on Sunday about um, replacement theology and how foolish it is when you study the book of Jeremiah and God's pledges that he has for this group of people. That's chapter 30. Chapter 31 is a long chapter and it deals with, again, um, Jeremiah's in prison. Um, he's surrounded on the outside by his enemies And yet he's got this message of hope. And chapter 31, 15 times, and what I did today when I was studying this, I underlined every every one of them. You're going to find the words, I will. The Lord is saying, I'll do this, I'll do this, and I will do that, and I will do that. 15 times in these 40 verses, um, almost half, the Lord is going to, Uh, speak these words, I will. So let's pick it up. And we can't even get past the first verse without this happening. The title here is Israel is Restored. He said, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people, says the Lord. This is yet future. When uh, the kingdom age is established, They have to go through the great tribulation. There will be a remnant that makes it through. And so all Israel will be saved. And the Lord will establish his kingdom. 
And uh, verse one is a yet future event. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel went to give him rest. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. And here the heart comes out, and in the middle of all this, um, it's going to be the darkest time in Israel's history where the heart of their heart as a temple is going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He's talking about his love for them, their future restoration, that he's not done with them. He says, O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and you shall go forth in the dance of those who rejoice. And you shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. And there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, let's go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And here again, um, we're talking about those who have gone through the great time of Jacob's trouble. They've come out the other end. And um, it's, it's this time of gladness where they're once again his people. And again, verse 8, behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the ends of the earth, from among uh, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there, and they shall come with weeping and with supplication. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of the one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come, and they will sing in the heights of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their soul will be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Again, we're talking about uh, that kingdom period of time, where they're regathered from all the nations. And um, the Lord is saying over and over again, I'm going to do this. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will cite the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Now, up to this point, we're reading, and I think we're pretty much catching it here. We're talking about a remnant that the Jews in the future are going to be happy. I mean, are you guys picking up on the general 
tone and, and what the Lord is trying to get across. I will do this, I will do this. You're going to be happy, you're going to be danced, you're going to be rejoicing. Everybody with me so far with that? That's pretty much the, the flavor up to this point, right? All right, now we have verse 15. And it's really a curve. And if I'm just reading this, and I'm just reading through the book of Jeremiah, and there is no New Testament yet, I would never have gotten this verse. It says, thus says the Lord, the voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Does that sound familiar? Turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 17. Matthew chapter 2 is the wise men following the star. Let me talk about the Magi for just a bit while you're finding Matthew 2. Daniel was called the chief Magi in Babylon. He was second in command um, while he was in Babylon because of the dreams and the visions that were given to him. And... um, The wise men came from the east. They were called magi. And we assume there were three simply because of the gifts. There could have been more. But they show up in Jerusalem. And they ask the question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod actually gives them the answer by quoting an Old Testament prophecy from Micah. Uh... And it says, but you, Bethlehem, in verse 6, in the land of Judah, are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so here is the Old Testament being connected with the New. Well, Herod, being Herod, isn't going to have, they, they said they came to worship the king of Israel. Well, Herod's the king of Israel as far as he's concerned. And he doesn't want any competition. So he says, I tell you what, if you guys find this king of Israel, come on back and let's talk about it because I'd sure like to go and worship him too. Well, you know the story. Um, They come and um, we're going to be in the shepherd's fields and I'll be telling part of this story here where um, Jesus is born and Herod, this is sometime later when the wise men, the wise men don't show up like you see in some of the storybooks. This is, could be a, a, as much as two years down, down the road where they actually they show up because Herod calls for every child two years and younger to be destroyed. And an angel appears to the wise men and said, don't go back to Herod. You guys go back another way. And so Herod, verse 16 Uh, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth, and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in the district from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So don't get the idea that the wise men showed up the same night and gave these gifts to the Lord. It was determined by the time of two years that, The indication is that's how long they were there. But then verse 17. This really throws me a curve. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, 
A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children because uh, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Okay, mothers, just put yourself in mother's shoes. You have your two-year-old child, and not just one child, but every male child in Bethlehem has just been taken out, uh, the innocence of it, the brutality of it, and um, here, this clearly, and, uh, my cross-reference says Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. And if you're reading through the book of Jeremiah and there is New Testament, I'm supposed to figure out that that's what the prophecy is being fulfilled? No way. I mean, up till this verse, up till verse 14, what are we talking about? Oh, rejoicing and happy and the joy of the Lord and you'll have tambourine and dancing and then you have verse 15. One of the things as we make our way through the Old Testament Um, not necessarily in a chronological order. And from one verse to the next, you can go from one subject matter to matter so extreme that you actually have to have the writer, Matthew in this case, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quoting Jeremiah 31.15 and saying, this is that, that Jeremiah spoke about. And... um, it's a complete change of thought. And um, I mean, the accuracy of the Holy Spirit connecting these dots should just, it blows my mind away because there's no way I would ever have figured it out unless it actually says this is that which was spoken by Jeremiah. Rachel weeping, verse 19, 16. For thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children come back to their own border. Now, this could be referring to literally now coming back to present time, Jeremiah's time. I'm going to bring them back from where they're in captivity. Verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Ephraim is my dear son. Is he a pleasant child? For though I have spoken against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. So back to the correction and the discipline, and yet he's my firstborn. I love him, and I will have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts and mark landmarks. Set your heart towards the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these, your cities. Now, the uh, subtitle here for the rest of it is um, Judah is to be restored. How long will 
you gad about, O you backslidden daughter. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O inhabitants of justice and mountains of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and all of its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satisfied the weary soul. I have replenished every sorrowful soul. And after this, I awoke and I looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and with the seed of beasts. And it will come to pass that as I have watched over them uh, to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. Now, this should remind you of last Sunday. Remember when we went to Ecclesiastes and I wanted to know if there's a verse on discipline? But all I could find is there's, there's a time to tear down and then there's a time to rebuild it back up again. And then we went to Jeremiah's calling in chapter 1 that he was called by the Lord in the womb to be a prophet. And in verse 10, I believe it is of Jeremiah 1, he says, this is your ministry, Jeremiah, to rip out, to tear down, to pull down, and then to rebuild and to restore. That's his whole ministry. And now here the Lord is actually quoting it again, uh, that he is going to do exactly that. After he's broken them down, he's going to build them back up again. Okay, change the thought. In those days, they shall no more say, well, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Well, what in the world does that mean? The fathers ate sour grapes and the kids have crooked teeth. Well, the idea is that one of the reasons for this judgment, remember, is specifically the the sin of one particular king named Manasseh. He would have been the father. These are now the children, and they're suffering the consequences. They they were corrupted by this king, and they're at fault themselves. But the Lord made the decision to make this judgment. He says, that's it. After Manasseh, this is, gonna, this is going to happen. And so the proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But that was then. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats sour grapes, uh, his teeth will be set on edge. So the idea here is there's judgment because of the father's sins that were before them. But he says, the days are coming where you're going to be held accountable for yourself. And now, picking it up with verse 31, talking about those days, he's going to make this new covenant where everybody is one-on-one accountable for yourself. You can't blame your father. You can't blame your mother. Everyone past the age of accountability will have to give an account Scary thought, the Bible says that we have to give an account for every idle word ever spoken. Now that makes me nervous, and that probably should make you a little nervous. Every idle word that 
we have to give an account for. And now we're looking into the future in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Now we're going to read up to verse 34, and we'll come back and take these. this as one thought. But let's start with the idea that in the future, the Lord is saying, I'm going to do something new with Israel. I'm going to establish a new covenant. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, um, go back to verse 31. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. Hebrews chapter 8 and also Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 8, picking it up in verse 7. Here's the writer of the Hebrews who has to get through to this very traditional, the grooves in the record are so deeply there, the traditions are so deeply embedded that for God to deal with the Jewish people in any other way than he already has is going to have to take a lot of explaining. And it's going to have to make a lot of sense. If the Hebrew people are to understand that God's going to put something aside and do something completely new. And one thing, if you're going to do this, that you've got to be able to establish that this is foretold in the Old Testament, not just the new. So here, I believe the writer is Paul, but that could be debated. But here, let's quote verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, is being fulfilled. And the writer of Hebrews is pulling the verses that we just read in Jeremiah, and he's explaining to them from the Old Testament that this was foretold. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saying, Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor. None of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for you shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
for I will be merciful to the unrighteous, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now what he has become, has become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, when we visit Israel, um, the Orthodox especially, all they do is study the Bible. All they do is they can't wait for the Sabbath. And they can't wait to get to the temple wall. And they can't wait for the boys to have their bar mitzvahs so they can take on the, the reading of the scriptures. And if you're um, a Hebrew now, and you have to explain away that God is done with one and he's starting something new, um, the lights would go on like, because they know these verses. They just didn't know how it was going to be fulfilled. Just like Rachel weeping. They knew that verse, but they didn't know it was going to be fulfilled by Herod, and they didn't know it was going to be an attack on children in Bethlehem. But when it happened, and when Matthew wrote it, if you're a Jew, and you know those, you know the book of Jeremiah, period. Bingo, the lights go on. So just imagine putting yourself as a Hebrew, and um, there were those who were insisting that you have to keep the circumcision, you have to keep the law, so on and so forth. And they go, no. If you're going to do that, let's turn to chapter 10 now, Verses 16 and 17, chapter 10, uh, verse 16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. They had offerings every single day. But now under one offering, and in, in, in this chapter, especially chapter 10, the reoccurring phrase is um, that there will be one offering for sin. And once you've had the, let's read verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You're a Jew? Once, only one sacrifice? No, no, we, we have sacrifices all the time. No. When Jesus said it was finished on Calvary to Telestai, it never needs to be repeated again. And that's breaking some s- strong traditions. But it's got to be explained in its entirety. And um, the writer of Hebrews here does, of course, he really lays it out very, very well. All right, let's make our way back to um, Jeremiah and finish out chapter... 31, which also leads us to a little sidetrack. Verse 35 through 37. For thus says the Lord who gives this, the sun for light by day and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and as waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. For thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, they keep changing it from 10 billion to 15 billion to 20 billion light years across. They don't know. If you could measure 
the heavens, and the foundations of the earth stretched out beneath. Then I will cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Okay, if you can, if you can measure the universe, which we can't, if we understand what goes on underneath the earth, which we can't, okay, then I will break and I'll cast off Israel. Turn to Romans chapter 11 in the New Testament. Romans 9, 10, 11. We'll get it more into depth into this and um, get pretty specific about replacement theology and how much of Christianity in the church holds to this completely unbiblical idea that the church somehow has gotten all the promises of Israel. If you can measure the heavens, then I'll forget my covenants, my promises with Israel. You can't do that. And so we read in verse 1, I say that, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Did I say chapter 8 or 11? Did I say 11? I meant 11. Good. I say, if God has cast away his people, certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I alone am, am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, these verses are so important because you can't have it both ways. This, to me, is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. Any denomination, any structure, institution, any denomination that says that good works are a part of your salvation is an abomination. Good place for an amen. Isn't that what the scripture says? I've made a covenant. Try to measure the universe. If you can, then I'll break my covenant with Israel. It's not going to happen. God's going to keep a remnant. Now, he has a reason for dealing with them. And the reason is that he wants to bring the Gentiles into the equation and allow the gospel to be presented to us. We're just the grafted in ones. We're not the head. We're the tail. We're, we're, we're not the trunk of the tree. Israel is, and we've simply been grafted into them. And so here he's laying away. I've, I, I've got my love for Israel is, can't be stopped. And if you can measure the heaven, then I'll stop it. But you can't measure the heaven. So much for replacement theology. And so much for any institution that says you must have works along with believing on Jesus Christ. And the obvious ones are out there. 
And uh, I know I offend people by naming names, but the Roman Catholic with, with this one billion members, that's uh, one of their um, conditions in their um, catechism that says, if any man says that you're saved apart from works, let that person be anathema. Now, my question, and when I make statements like that, and um, I'm accused of... of um, of um, saying negative things against the denomination, I say no, I'm not. I'm simply reading what the Word of God says, and I want to ask the question, aren't they the ones that are pronouncing anathema upon me because of what I just said? The answer is, check it out. Get a catechism. See if what they say, if anybody says that you have to have good works plus faith in Jesus Christ, and if, you, if they say anything otherwise, then let, let that person be eternally damned. I'm that person, okay? And um, so I don't take offense that they get upset with that, but um, I'm not going to back away from what the Scripture clearly says here. You can have it both ways. Either it's grace or it's works. Is that pretty clear in the writing here? Either it's grace or it's works. But here's the good news. Gang, if you get that down, if, if I had any part of making it to heaven on my good works, you know what my confidence level is going to be? Zzz, <laughs> one big eggshell. Because if I'm any part of the equation, I will screw it up somehow. I guarantee it. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. He says, my flesh is so tricky. I don't even judge myself. I give that to the Lord. Because I might think my motive is good. And my motive might, be, might stink as far as the Lord is concerned. Look at the evaluations of the seven letters to the seven churches. They all had their own opinion of themselves, which contradicted the opinion that the Lord had of them. They thought one thing, and the Lord had a completely different perspective of five of the, five of the seven churches. They had one perception of themselves, and um, like the church of Laodicea. You say that you're rich and you're wealthy, but you're really poor, blind, and miserable. Their perception was what? Hey, things are good. We're happy, healthy, and, and wealthy. And he says, no, you're not. You're, you're blind, naked, and poor. And so um, he goes on to say, for what then, in verse 7, I'll leave it at that, because otherwise we won't get through my chapters. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And the Lord has allowed this period of blindness. He talks about it. Um, and then we've, we've read this verse so many times, but it's so important to get down. Uh, go to verse 25, the same chapter. He says, Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own opinions, that this hardening in part has happened to Israel. God has allowed it to happen to them. That hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That tells me that there's a beginning point for the church and an ending point for the church. That there's a set number that the Lord knows and when that last person gets saved, then we're out of here. The church started at Pentecost. The church will end at the rapture. And when that last person gets saved, we are out of here. 
And it's usually at this point I'd like to say, if you're not saved, would you please get your act together because I want to go home. Clear enough? Somebody's holding things up here. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but there's truth to it. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is Jeremiah saying? Exactly that. All right, let's go back. We just finished 30 and 31, and we've got to keep going here. 32 and 33, Jeremiah is in prison, the background. Jerusalem is under siege by Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, Jeremiah buys a piece of real estate in Anathoth. Now, imagine, if you will, just to set this chapter up a little bit. (laughs) Jerusalem is surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar. And... The false prophets are clearly hung out to dry by this time. Um, Can you imagine what the real estate market in Jerusalem would be at this time? When you know that um, you're going to be broken into any day? So what the Lord is going to tell Jeremiah to do while he is in prison is to buy a piece of property. So let's pick it up and read up to verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the eleventh year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in prison, which is in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up. Why did he shut him up in prison? Well, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, and will surely be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. He shall then lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he will be there until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you will not succeed." So what does this guy do, Zedekiah? He doesn't like the message. So what does he do? He throws the messenger in prison. Why is he there? He says, because you're saying bad stuff. Stop it. Jeremiah, stop it. Um, You're going to be in prison. So what does Jeremiah do? He says, okay, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, Hanamiel, the son of uh, Salem, your uncle, will come to you saying, buy the field which is Anath for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. And then it happened. Uh, Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court, on the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. It's the right of, of the inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours, buy it for yourself. Now, this is what's interesting to me, is what he says next. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Well, didn't he know it was the word of the Lord before? Sometimes we have strong impressions that we really feel the Lord is speaking to us. And um, 
The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice. Uh, We're told to acknowledge the Lord in everything we do. Good place for an amen, right? As if we're expecting to get an answer. And so we have this strong conviction where we want peace from the Lord. And it makes me wonder how the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. Because what we're told here is he really didn't know it was the Lord until his uncle actually came in and says, hey, why don't you buy my piece of property? And then he says, well, then I knew it was the Lord. I could cite lots of examples. I said, Lord, what can I use for an example, just for a quickie tonight? Well, I remember in the 90s, sitting in my office about 9 o'clock, and in the early 80s, we had the first Pilgrim's Cafe. And we had it from 80 to 83, and we ended up, all of our energy and money needed to be brought when we took on this building here. So we were out of the first Pilgrim's Cafe and um, didn't have it for many, many years. And I'm sitting in my office, and, and I could have sworn the Lord says, uh, get up and go downtown. Um, we're going to have a second Pilgrim's Cafe. And it was really a strong impression. And so this was maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. So the only guy that I really knew downtown at that time was John Zimmerman, who owned Conkey's Bookstore. And John's been a friend of mine for years. We're Y buddies. Our lockers are next to each other at the Y. And I, I said, John, um, you know of any buildings for rent on the avenue across here? And he says, yeah, the one across the street. He says, the YMCA owns it. Why don't you go talk to Fred? And I looked at this, this building, and... Um, it had a 1960 storefront, and um, I thought, well, we'll see. So I, I went to the, the Y, the director of the Y at that time was Fred, and um, I, I sat at his, at his office, and we were, we were friends, we knew each other. And I said, uh, what's the deal with the building? What are you, you going to use that for? And he says, actually, we're trying, to, we're trying to rent it out right now or sell it or do something with it. And I said, really, can we go look at it? And we went over and we walked and he took me inside. It had a false ceiling, about eight feet tall. And I remember walking up the stairs to where the offices were. And all of a sudden I looked up and I saw this turn of the century um, tin ceiling. And um, I realized that the ceilings were really high. And I thought, man, this place has potential. Uh, We had the building by noon. It was a done deal. By noon. From 10 o'clock, I had a strong impression. And um, I drew on a piece of paper in front of what I wanted to do with this building. And I said, but you're going to have to work with us until we can, can buy it. He says, we could do that. So then I knew it was the Lord. What I felt in my office to go down because the Lord says, we're going to have a new Pilgrim's Cafe. Well, you know the story. We bought that one and then we bought the building next to it. We restored both of them. And um, we enjoyed those for, for many years. So that's my story that then I knew it was the Lord. And you have, you have your own stories. You, you're praying about something. You have a strong conviction. And then something happens. You go, wow, it really was the Lord. So I bought the... Cafe from Hananiah, 
the son of my uncle. You guys are still listening? <laughs> so after he knew it was the Lord, he bought it. Um, and he weighed out to him 17 shekels of silver. Signed the deed, sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money in the balance. And, and so I purchased the deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. All right, I'm gonna fill in some of this chapter because I really wanna get through 34 too and I'm, my time is running out because I'm telling Pilgrim Cafe stories. So what he does is this is a sign and the rest of this chapter is he does this in front of the elders. He wants everybody to see that he is buying a piece of property that makes no sense at all when a city is about to fall. So why buy it? He's told to take it, this deed, and put it in verse 14 in an earthen vessel so that it can last a long time. So now you have the deed to a piece of property. He's gotta put it in something, why? Because they're gonna be in captivity for 70 years. And um, this is starting to get on um, Jeremiah, and he's wondering about if this is really going to happen. And he asked the Lord about it again. It's, it's sort of like a Gideon thing uh, where he has this fleece before the Lord, and he knows it's the Lord, but he, he still wants more confirmation. And so he asked the Lord about it, and in verse 27, this is what the Lord says to him about him coming back and having a piece of land. In verse 27, he says, Behold, I'm the Lord, the God of all the flesh. Is there anything too hard for me, Jeremiah? If I tell you to buy a piece of land and I say you're going to come back in 70 years, you think that's too tough for me to do? And therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give the city into the hands of the Chaldeans, and uh, I am going to take them into captivity. And the reason now for this judgment, let's look at verse 34. Their abominations were great, but they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the very high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the sons of Himmon. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. Now this is almost, you know, just unbelievable that the numbness of their conscience had gotten so lost and they have sunk so low that they have no heart for watching their own children being placed on the red hat burning arms of the God of Moloch, which is no God at all. And the Lord says, I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Israel to sin. And so the Lord says, that's what's going to happen. But then, in verse 44, men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the place around Jerusalem, in the cities of, of, of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowlands, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captivity to return, says the Lord. So, all of chapter 32 is this, uh, Jeremiah is in prison and um, he's told to, to buy this piece of land and he's looking for confirmation from the Lord to do it. 
And um, as much as I'd like to, um, I don't want to. I don't want to rush through thirty-three. It's just too good, too good to rush through. So I'm going to do something I never do and stop on time. Will you forgive me? Just this once. Let's stand and we'll pray. I looked at that and I thought, how? No, no way. I'm, the chapters are too long. Get through four of them. I don't know. Lord, as we look at your word tonight, and we see the back and forth, the up and down, words of encouragement, words of reproof of uh, your people, and uh, the certainty of the captivity that's coming. Um, Lord, your word tells us that we are very unique group of people because you've brought Israel back into the land a second time. And you tell us that when you do that, the generation that sees it is going to see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. We read tonight in your word that those that are living in the latter days will understand it. Lord, we see your people gathered together. We see the storm clouds arising in the Middle East. And we actually get it. The things that Daniel wanted to know, you're revealing to us. And um, we thank you, Lord, for that, that we are not to fear because you have a purpose and a plan for the church that when the fullness of the Gentiles does come in, you're going to call us out of here. And then you're going to keep your promise and fulfill Daniel's 70th week. You're going to fulfill the time of Jacob's trouble. And Lord, you've laid it all out in front of us, and we're watching it unfold right before our eyes. So as we glean from your word tonight, we leave with a little bit more confidence, the certainty that there's no power in the universe that could ever break your unconditional covenant that you've made with your people, that you're going to deal with a remnant. And we thank you, Lord, that you've opened... um, our heart and our mind to your word. We give you, Lord, all the praise. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.